Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. I'm your host, John Landis, and tonight we have the second in a two-part series on Marcus Miller, uh, a great bass player and a really good interview done by Dave Schroeder of the Steinhardt School. Uh, we did the first unit, and or the first uh, session, and that was a, a really interesting one, too, where we learned a lot about Marcus's role um, with respect to the beginning of uh, fusion and other... Um, directions that jazz took in New York and other areas um, during his career. He's had a, a long and, and really interesting career, played a lot of sessions uh, with different musicians, played with Miles Davis on a number of different records, uh, grew up in Brooklyn, as we learned in the first, uh, in the first session, and, and, uh, but then uh, lived in Queens, uh, was a major part of the New York jazz scene, and learned in his career how to kind of create opportunities from from chances that he had to play in different situations. And uh, that's really useful information that I think he's passed on to some of the students uh, who uh, attended the lectures that he, uh, um, or the interviews that he was having at the Steinhardt School. Um, so sit back and let's enjoy this, uh, the second of a, of a two-part series of an interview of Marcus Miller, bass player, by Dave Schroeder of NYU Steinhardt School. Well, certainly Miles is a classic example of somebody who, when he was starting off at your age, like uh, 19 years old, playing with Charlie Parker, mm -hmm. and you look at the end of his career where he's playing uh, Cindy Lauper tunes or mm -hmm. whatever and making them his own, mm -hmm. he certainly, I don't think he would ever go back and play My Funny Valentine. No, he wouldn't play My Funny Valentine, but he'd play the current version of My Funny Valentine, meaning... You know, the bebop guys were playing Broadway songs. They were playing pop songs mm -hmm. and just <laughs> stretching them and opening them up and showing people the possibilities of these pop songs because there was some beauty in those songs that maybe not everybody could hear mm -hmm. and some depth in these songs that maybe not everybody could hear. But Miles and Bird and all the jazz musicians who took these show tunes and these, um, these tunes that, uh, you know, can you imagine Miles walking in the studio and going, hey, man, we're going to play this song from this Disney film, Snow White. Yes. Miles, come on, man. What? Paul James like, oh, man. This yeah. is sweet. You know what I mean? And all the rest of us who heard that said, man, I would have never thought. And the combination of a tune that's part of America's soul, because entertainment songs, you know, show tunes and pop songs, they go into America's soul. The combination of taking those songs that are part of you and then opening them up and showing you something that you never believed was possible. That's one of the most magical things. But you know, the interesting thing, when it comes from the artist, the artist is attracted to a song as compared to a record label, like when Bossa Nova came out. It's mm. like everybody had to do a Bossa Nova. Coleman Hawkins was a Bossa Nova record. Yeah. Or um, I had read at some point that uh, Columbia Records wanted Monk to do a tribute to Blood, Sweat and Tears. Yeah, that dude's not in the music business, I'm sure, right yeah. now, you know. But yes, you, you do have that. And that's something that every musician, if they stay around long enough, is going to have to deal with. You yep. know, we had Bossa Nova, we had Boogaloo, yep. right? I mean, everybody had a Boogaloo record. Sidewinder. We, yeah, Sidewinder. And we had uh, uh, funk, right? We had uh, disco. You know, there's a, there's a disco giant steps out there, you know what I mean? We had um, 
We had techno, Herbie Hancock, Rocket, you know. We had um, hip hop, us three, you know. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. And how you negotiate that pressure, because either you, you avoid it all the way around and just continue to play your thing, or you take on the challenge. Herbie Hancock took on the challenge. Mm -hmm. He won, you know what I mean? Because some, maybe it was him, he came to it naturally, maybe some record company guy said, hey man, you should try doing some, uh, you know, some breakdance beats, you know? But Herbie, and I've seen a lot of musicians do that, somebody gives him an idea which is basically a stupid idea. The guy hasn't, he's not thinking deeply. And Herbie goes, and this is how Herbie is, either I just dismiss this guy as an idiot, or I go, well, if I ask myself to do that, how would I do it? Mm. And all of a sudden you get, and we as listeners know, this guy came to this in an honest and deep way. This guy just did what the record company said to mm -hmm. do. So you as a producer, when you have an executive producer come at you with like some stupid idea, you've learned your lesson, I guess. I had a guy, Miles and I were working on a movie soundtrack called Siesta. Mm -hmm. The producer came in and said, Marcus, this thing needs a blues. And I'm like, this thing is filmed in Madrid, right? The temporary score before we wrote the new music was Sketches of Spain. Where does the blues fall in, in all of this? You know what I mean? So my first reaction was like, that's a ridiculous idea. Then I said to myself, just for kicks, if I were gonna do a blues in Madrid, what would it sound like? All of a sudden I started writing this stuff. And I said, Miles, try this melody. I wrote this stuff out for Miles. And he's looking at it, he goes, go to the five and dime and get me some reading glasses. <laughs> and I run to the store, got him some reading glasses, put it on, and he plays a melody. And it was beautiful, you know what I mean? So rather than reject the idea, which I initially said, this is stupid, okay? I let it be, you know, a challenge for myself. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be something that I probably wouldn't have arrived at on mm -hmm. my own. Wow, interesting. So how does that play into your career now when you go out and perform? Are you taking things from pop culture, from society, or trying to pull back and say, you know, this is really where my heart is? A little bit of both. You know, I was never that dude who, who lived completely outside of mainstream. You know, I played basketball, you know, I, I practiced my butt off as a teenager, but I also did not separate myself, you know what I mean? So, so for me, the best music, the music that I really admire is like Duke Ellington and Miles and, and even like Grover Washington Jr., Mr. Magic. Mm -hmm. Stuff that acknowledged the world that it was being created in and just said, here's a really artistic rendering of what's going on today. Mm -hmm. That's what I admire. To me, it's really easy to just be on your own thing and not address the world. You know, that's easy. And it's really easy to just completely address the world and not insert any of yourself in it. But to me, the magic area is where you take that thing, man, and you have people moving like they move to Duke Ellington's music, but you're hitting them in the head with all sorts of stuff that they might not otherwise have been able to digest because that rhythm got them locked up already. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And to me, that's where the sweet spot is. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I teach uh, jazz history, and, uh, and I teach it to uh, a lot of students from around the world. And everybody's familiar with uh, what we probably call classic jazz, anything from the, 
uh, up to the 50s and early 60s mm -hmm. and miles and uh, plug nickel and those types of things. As we get into the fusion era, uh, le it's less so. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because uh, of the way we've been steered into a box with this is what jazz is. A lot of, a lot of pundits will say jazz has got to have this swing to it and it has to include these types of people. But when I start playing uh, Return to Forever or Weather Report or whoever, uh, I've never heard this before, mm -hmm. meaning students. And, mm -hmm. and um, so I think uh, potentially there, there's uh, it's time for a resurgence of this because uh, it's just not been in the public consciousness. Well, every, every art form has an arc, a life arc. And you can't deny that, you know what I mean? And Jazz, you know, from the beginning of the century, last century, you know, it comes up through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. By the time we get to the 50s, man, that thing has been distilled into some amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, guys have taken the experiments from before and they've kind of developed it. And then, you know, we're talking about the 60s, which historically in our country, there was so much... It was so fertile because of what was going on, because music doesn't exist by itself. The musicians were reacting to this incredible stuff that's happening in our country. It was an amazing time, mm -hmm. you know? And think about it, man. We went from Louis Armstrong, King Oliver Louis Armstrong, and by 1967, we're with John Coltrane. We're in interstellar space, okay? We had nowhere else to go, you know what I mean? So then this rock, this new beat came in, and we said, hey, Let's, uh, let's incorporate this new fusion thing. Let's make fusion, okay? Mm -hmm. Fusion, to me, extended lot, uh, jazz's first arc from 10 more years. If fusion hadn't happened, it would have been over. You know what I mean? But there is fusion. Like, it depends on who you talk to, because, you know, the people I know, you play Mr. Magic, they're like, that's, man, that was my jam. You know what right. I mean? It's almost like it, began, it actually started go-go music in Washington, D.C. Chuck Brown was playing Grover Washington's Mr. Magic at a club. The beat was so infectious, people were dancing, he didn't want to let it go. So they kept the beat going and played different songs on top of the Mr. Magic beat, and it started this music called Go-Go. That's how influential that stuff was. Can you talk about Grover Washington? He was, you know, he and Sanborn kind of started this thing that has these different names. Um, and smooth jazz musicians consider them the godfather of the genre. And I think they probably roll their eyes <laughs> mm -hmm. because they're going, man, we walked the bar. You know, if Grover and David Sanborn were to sit together, they, you walked the bar? Heck yeah, I walked the bar. Did you walk the bar? Yeah, I walked the bar. And for people who don't know what walk the bar means, if you played blues back in the 50s and the 60s, at a certain point, you had to jump up on the bar, go da 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 and get the people hollering. That was how you did it. You had to walk the bar. You had a connection with people. You knew what music uh, did to people physically, mm -hmm. and walking the bar was part of that. And the musicians who emulate Grover Washington and David Sanborn, they never walked the bar. You know? mm. I talked to uh, Eric Clapton. This is even jazz. I talked to Clapton. What do you think about so-and-so? I'll name some other rock hero. He said, you can tell he never played the blues. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Because underneath all of this stuff, right, if you know how to listen, there's depth. Now people, because it's shiny or there's a drum machine or whatever it is, some people, that throws them off. And they go, oh, it's just, 
it's just a light. But if I know David Sanborn's sound, you know, I can hear, I know, I can tell between him and the imitators because there's something, there's roots yes. that go down. And I think Grover and David and Bob James, Bob James played atonal music for like five or six years. You know, he was really influenced by Cecil Taylor and these guys, you know. And you can hear that there's a, another thing. Joe Sample, who was another architect of this thing they call smooth jazz now, that guy, man, was in, at the Texas-Louisiana border playing in blues clubs where, you know, they're playing jazz and the, and the patrons are saying, man, if y'all don't make, something, make us feel good real soon, we're going to kick your asses and take your <laughs> instruments. You're going to have to walk back to Houston, you know. You have those kind of experiences, man. That gives you depth, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And these guys playing, you know, smooth jazz, they haven't had those experiences, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So the, the unfortunate part about it is that Sanborn calls it suds and the beer. He said, I hear these musicians, they're just playing the suds mm -hmm. and they don't have the beer, you know? So uh, I, I, think, I think it'd be good if we can get some of that back. Now, what about you as a, as a bass player? Who were who the bass players that influenced you? Um, James Jameson. I didn't know it was James Jameson at the time, mm. particularly on the Jackson 5 records. I thought it was Michael's brother Jermaine playing the bass and I thought he was the baddest 14 year old bass player <laughs> ever. And then later on, I found out that all those bass lines yes. I was learning were played by James Jamerson. Not to take away credit from Jermaine, because he had to go on the road, sing, dance in the, in the high heel platform shoes, and play those bass lines, you know what I mean? So he was pretty bad himself at 14, 15 years old. James Jamerson, uh, then uh, Rocco, who was the bass player from Tower of Power. I mm -hmm. uh, really Presetti. loved him. Hmm? Yes, Prestia, yep. yeah. Prestia. And then, um, Larry Graham, heard Larry Graham, and he wasn't playing like this, he was playing like this. And that just blew my mind and everybody else in my neighborhood's mind, because it sounded like a drum and a bass at the same time. And it was just funky and he was soulful. And that, that blew my mind. Then, then Stanley Clark, he took some of that thumping and plucking, but he had the dexterity and the jazz sensibility. So he was incredible, and Jaco Pastorius. And, and then there was a bunch of funky cats like Pops Popswell, who used to play with the Crusaders, and, and uh, um, who else? Um, and then on the jazz side, because like I told you around 14, 15, I got turned on to jazz and Paul Chambers was my guy, you know what I mean? He was the bass player who played the most with Wynton Kelly. Right. And I just loved his feeling, his combination of head and heart, you know what I mean? Um, Sam Jones, Ron Carter, those are my three guys on, on, the, on the upright bass. Not that I played upright. <clears throat> Did you ever was, play upright? I played all the time at home, but for me, uh, I grew up in this little four or five year period where you were allowed to play the electric bass solely. You know, Sonny Rollins had an electric bass player in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody had an electric bass. It was kind of a little groove that we were in for about five or six years. And my formative years are right then and there. So I played bass. I just finished the film score where I played all acoustic bass. But when I need to tell you who I am and tell you about my life experiences, I'm going to pick up a bass guitar.
Thanks for joining us. This is WLIWFM in Southampton, New York, 88.3 FM, Long Island's only NPR station. And you're listening to the Jam Session Radio Hour. And uh, uh, tonight we have an interview of Marcus Miller, storied bass player, um, by Dave Schroeder of NYU Steinhardt School as part of their NYU Jazz Interview Series. Hey, let me ask you about uh, NBC Sunday Night. You were with that for a oh, couple yeah. years. Mm-hmm. What a great show. That was one of my favorite shows. Oh, thank you. Time. It was called, for the first season, it was called Sunday Night. And then the next season, it was called Night Music because Night. it wasn't, it was coming on like 1 a.m. Right. And people were missing it with their VCRs because they were putting, on, putting in 1 a.m. on Sunday. And it was, you know, that's 24 hours earlier. You yep. know what I mean? So they changed the name. <laughs> but it was a great show. That was one of the, uh, probably the last time that there was this mashup of so many different musical styles and personalities. On TV, yeah. On TV. Yeah, David Sanborn, it was his, um, you know, he came up with the idea, and we all had a Saturday Night Live connection because mm-hmm. David was in the band for a while when I was in the band. So Lauren Michael, who's the producer of Saturday Night Live, he said, yeah, let's try it. You know, so basically, if you imagine Saturday Night Live, but just the music part, you know what I mean? But with an experimental edge, that's what it was. And, Dizzy Gillespie and Bootsy and Miles and Javon from Brazil and, uh, and John Zorn and Jeff Healy. Just uh, Donald Fagan came on and hung out with us and 
and didn't even sing. He just played the piano. He just wanted to be in the band, you know what I mean, wow. from Steely Dan. So it was, it was a great experience. Why did that end? It ended because uh, it's expensive to do TV shows. I mean, and I think it was mostly just budget. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just uh, when you look back uh, at a lot of these great TV shows, they ran for two years. Star Trek ran for two years. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we got a good run. We were actually proud of having strung it out for that long, you know. But I think it's probably budgetary. I, I, was, I was just the MD for the first year. Um, so I wasn't kind of privy to all the decisions, but that's what I suspect. Mm. What, that was two years? Was that, yeah. Two years. I did the first year as the MD. I left, George Duke took over because mm. Miles was start, getting ready to start up another album. And I wanted to continue what I had started with him. So, but I came back on as a guest producer and brought Miles on the show and Javon, the Brazilian singer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a really cool show. So what do you think about the music business now today? Uh, you know, it's completely different. You know, it's not centralized, which has its good, good points and bad points. You know, um, what's good about it is that there's nobody now telling you you need to do a pop version of this mm-hmm. song, a disco version of this song. The bad part is when you come up with something great, it's really hard to get it to everybody like you used to be able to do, you know. And that's not just jazz. It's hard to create, uh, to get to everybody. Like Michael Jackson, you know, when Thriller mm-hmm. came out, everybody's grandmother had it, everybody's mother had it, you had it, you know, your, your young cousins had it. It was a universal phenomenon. And that's harder to do because everything, everybody's on the internet, on the website that they like, you know, checking out the music category that they like, and it's harder to get to people. And when you narrow it down to jazz, it's even harder. You can do whatever you want now. Right because there's no record company. But not as many people are gonna hear it. Why? Because there's no record company. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Well, in the record stores, people would come in and they could browse or there would be displays saying, this is the latest Blue Note record or whatever, right. check it out. Uh, now, younger people that never had that experience, they just go online and they don't know what to look for. There's nobody right. telling them or if there are people in the world telling them they're just very specific. And those people don't have, like you're saying, those people don't have a big enough platform to influence right. like a whole generation. You know, we used to have like one DJ in R&B it was Frankie Crocker. You know, he was a DJ in New York who, you know, you listen to Frankie to see what was happening, mm-hmm. you know? And they had DJs like that in, in, in the Delta, you know, and, and they had people on TV who were telling you what's happening. We don't have that. And without stars, because this is how you create stars. And without stars, the whole genre suffers. You know, mm-hmm. you can say what you want about Maynard Ferguson, about Buddy Rich, about Chuck Mangione, about Miles in some periods of his career. But let me tell you, without them, people don't get turned on to the stuff that you actually love. You know? right. And that's really important. Like, think about a jazz festival, man. You know, the jazz musicians, the, the guys who are playing more like classic jazz, mumbling, man, this group, you know, I'm saying, dude, this festival exists because that group is playing at 9 p.m., mm-hmm. okay? That brings the whole thing financially into a possibility. You know? Right. What about the, uh, the, the dichotomy between uh, vocal music and instrumental music? I mean, I grew up on instrumental music. Like you were saying, 
the 70s. It was Chuck Mangione. It was Maynard Ferguson for mm-hmm. Miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could hear that stuff on AM radio. Yeah. People are, um, you know, I do think the attention span was much longer mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40 years ago. I think if you watch a, a classic movie from the 1940s, the thing is two and a half, three hours long, and it's deep, you know what I mean? And I just think that people just have more stuff going on in their lives now and don't really have the patience mm-hmm. to really listen to an instrumental song. Uh, the thing we all have to at least admit is that the human voice is the primary means of communication. And it goes to a part of a brain we have no control over, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So when you have a little baby and you play that baby instrumental music, that's cool. It probably, if it's good music, will affect the baby. When you have somebody singing, that baby's going to pay attention. That's just try to get around that if you can, if you like, mm-hmm. but it's not going to happen. Okay. Yeah. That being the case, there was room back in 1950s, 1970s even. There was room for instrumentalists to express themselves. You know what I mean? But the other thing was there was an accessibility. You know, musicians like to blame everybody but themselves. But at a certain point, you know, um, there's a reason that Ahmad Jamal was so popular and so successful. There's a reason Ramsey Lewis was so successful. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason Miles in the 50s was so successful. As deep as that music was, it had handlebars, you know? And if you make, and by handlebars, I mean it had melodies that people could identify. Even people who were progressive, it gave you something to hold on to. John Coltrane, man, there's an interview with John Coltrane in the 60s. And they said, uh, you know, congratulations on my favorite things. You know, it's your biggest selling record ever. And uh, what have you been up to now? And Train said, trying to find another of my favorite things. Mm. <laughs> wow. There's nothing like, there's nothing like a hit. I mean, hit has all these kind of negative connotations, but I'm talking about not those hits. I'm talking about the hits with depth, that's a home run, right? When you come up with uh, A-Train, when you come up with those great songs that everybody knows from Duke Ellington or Count Basie, or you come up with some of those performances with Miles where you don't have to know anything about music, you didn't have to take a single course at NYU, you just go, this touches me, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? That's a home run. And then it happens to have all the other stuff in it too, all the harmonies, all the depth, that means you can listen to it 25 years from now and still pull something from it, that's a home run. And we don't have a lot of home runs these days. People are shooting for, for singles and doubles. But who do we have today that's, that's hitting home runs? Um, let's see. In my opinion, Robert Glasper is doing well. The only problem with Robert's um, situation now is that people who don't really investigate him think he's an R&B musician. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's because he's got a bunch of singers on his record, great singers, and he's doing great arrangements. But he's bifurcated his career where he's got the Robert Glasper experiment and he's got this kind of black music project, Mm -hmm. which is interesting and is doing well. And he's figured out a way to deal with it. But it's not the same as um, as the in crowd (laughs) by Ramsey Lewis. You know what I mean? Where it's Ramsey. Right. And what people are attracted to is Ramsey. You know what I mean? That's a whole nother thing. So who's doing that today? there's not a lot of people doing it, you know. Esperanza has the potential to do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She has a potential where it's everything. 
melody that just gets people rhythm that connects the community, you know what I mean? And depth to it, you know? It's there, but it's, it hasn't happened recently. Now, at the same time, over the past several weeks, Chick Corea's been at the Blue Note, sold out every night. It's very expensive. People, people are looking, I don't know if they're looking for uh, something that is recognizable from the past, or they're just inspired, or they just want to go see uh, a name that they recognize. It depends on what week. Yeah. Because Chick was there for like, is there? Is he still there? Still there. He's still there for, for two months. And each week is a different band. Mm -hmm. So one week he had the electric band, which is people who want to hear that incredible, mm -hmm. complicated uh, music from that period with Dave Weckl and Patatucci. And then he did, I played with him for a week. We did a tribute to Miles. It was Wallace Roney, Kenny Garrett, Brian Blade, Mike Stern, and myself. And people just wanted to hear what we were going to do. They were like, we don't know which Miles they're going to pay tribute to. We don't know. But he's a great musician, and we're going we're gonna to go. Now, bear in mind, it's the Blue Note. It's not Madison Square Garden. Right. You know what I mean? So, and Chick Corea has developed this beautiful, sterling reputation as a musician of substance, you know. And he's gone through periods like Herbie where he brought everybody into the game. Return to Forever brought a lot of kids into the game, into the mm -hmm. jazz game. He said, hey, man, I don't know. I love this music. It has rock. It has everything. I want to know everything this guy does. That's what happened to me with, when I heard Headhunters, you mm -hmm. know. So now he's been responsible for broadening the world of jazz, you know, at least the listening population, you know, Herbie mm -hmm. too. So now they have everybody, you know. So you go to their concerts and people just, hey, I'm yours. Just take me where you're going to take me. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a beautiful thing.
This is WLIW FM 88.3 in Southampton, also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour and our interview of Marcus Miller. So, Marcus, is there any uh, words of advice or any wisdom you can give to uh, students who are trying to follow your path or a, or a path in music and creativity? Of course, you know, they ask musicians that all the time. Yeah. And it's hard because my story is my story, my situation, my, my set of opportunities were, were unique. The time I was getting started, that was a unique time. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, like I was saying earlier, man, there were so many opportunities for a solid bass player. Back in 1979, 1980, you know, I was working. I was running. I mean, Miles was standing there on the stage, backstage, going, where's Marcus? You know, and I, I, I just got there from the airport and got in the back of the line of the band getting on the stage. He said, I know you just got here. <laughs> but I was doing an Aretha Franklin date earlier in New York, and he was up in Connecticut, you know. So I said, okay, I cut a little too close. I need to be cool with that. But there's just a million opportunities. So what you try to do when you're telling a young person giving them some advice, you just have to see, well, are there any generalities that I can think of that would apply today, right? So the thing I was saying earlier, not all your opportunities, not all your great opportunities are gonna involve money, especially when you're young. You need to get as broad as you can. You need to have as many experiences as you can. The more you limit yourself, the less chance you have for success. That doesn't mean you won't have it. Because if you limit yourself and you happen to hit, resonate with people and become successful, it'll be a great thing because people will know you for that one thing you limited yourself to and you know, you will become an icon. But if you narrow yourself and you don't resonate, you don't fall into that one tenth of a percent, then you're sitting there with nothing, you know? If you're a bass player, people ask me, man, should I be a groove player or should I learn the solo? And my advice is you don't have the right to choose. You need to be a well-rounded musician. Mm-hmm. That's what they told me. Same advice when they said, well, you know, I'm not a composer, I'm a player. I said, why are you at the age of 19, 20 years old defining yourself like that? Figure out a piano and write your, write your, write your tunes. Maybe you won't come up with anything, but you don't know what's in you, you know? Especially if you're self-limiting, that's really a mistake, you know? Like I was saying earlier, you have to make the rest of the musicians as a bass player feel good. That's your job. You know, people who don't play music, they say, what does the bass do? You know, and the, the classic description is you just play them a track and then turn off the bass. And they go, whoa, what happened? <laughs> the bass left, right? Your job is to hold stuff together, you know? I play bass guitar. And now, because in pop music, bass guitar in a lot of pop music isn't holding music together now. It's since, you know what I mean? So guys who play bass guitar aren't having that experience of having the responsibility of holding a band together. Consequently, you hear a lot of guys playing six-string extended range basses, and they're more like guitar players, you know, playing mm-hmm. chords and, and, and lines, which is beautiful. But you say, wow, the guy never had to keep a party going. You know what I mean? And it's changing. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I'm telling you, if you're looking at me as an example, on YouTube, all you see is my slap solos, you know what I mean? But for the rest of the two-hour concert, you know what I mean? I was holding the band together, you know? I was making sure that the drummer is integrated into the, into the band, you know, and making sure that the soloists are propelled, you know what I mean? When they come to that end of the phrase, I hit them with something that makes them step it up a level to the next day. 
you know, like being a human being, you know. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would tell musicians is that on the human side is that if you're the kind of person who in a conversation, when the other person is talking, you're thinking about the next thing you're going to say, that's going to come through your music, you know. We've all played with people who when you're talking, they're not listening to you. They're thinking about the next thing they're going to say. And I can hear it in drummers, you know, because bass player and drummers, we have these relationships, you know what I mean? Like we have to work together. I can hear when the guy's thinking about his fill that's coming up in six bars instead of living right there mm-hmm. and playing the music. For drummers, I tell them a story about Steve Gadd in the studio. One of the first times I played with him, we got to the studio and his producer, who had a demo tape of the song we were about to record, and he, he plays it for us. And every other drummer I played with up until this point, when the demo was playing, they jump on the drums and start playing along with the demo, right? Oh yeah, I got it, yeah, you know, yeah, oh yeah, this is just a blah, blah, blah. Steve Gadd says, play the demo. The demo played all the way to the end. He says, play it again. Can I get a cup of coffee? You know, and they made him a cup of coffee. He's listening. He's talking to me about, you know, whatever he's talking to me about. Listen, play it again. You know, we were there for half an hour. He just kept telling the guy to play the demo, you know, and we're talking and listening. And then he finally goes to the drum set, you know, and he plays the thing, the first take. Every subtlety of this song was captured. Every little detail that all the other drummers had plowed through because they started playing right along before they even heard that the third time the chorus comes around, you know, we took two beats out. The, the second time the first happens, you know, there's a whole nother feeling, you know. He knew all that because he lived with the song, not even concentrating on it, just letting it seep into his, into his psyche, you know what I mean? He gets on the drums and it's right. We played the song one time, the producer says, that's it, can we do it one more time just for fun? We do it one more time. He says, I can't think of a reason to keep you guys here any longer. We booked three hours, but it's done. And that says so much to me, that experience, because it was like, at first it looked like he was not connected, that he didn't care. You know, he was just more interested in his coffee. You know what I mean? But when you realize, no, he's living with the song. You know what I mean? And so by the time it was time to play it, he caught everything, man. It was beautiful. So as a musician, man, you have to understand what is your purpose, man. We're trying to tell a story. If we're a side man, we're trying to help somebody tell their story. You know what I mean? And we're trying to communicate. You know, if you're not interested in communicating, why are you on a stage? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Stay home. You know. But if you're out here, man, you're trying to put across something. And so, so think about that as a group. Marcus, thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you pleasure. here. Pleasure. Thank you.
thanks once again for joining us. We're so happy we can bring these to you. Uh, they are such interesting interviews, and I think we've learned, I certainly have learned a tremendous amount from studying some of what these jazz players have taught us uh, from their years of playing in this scene and growing and developing as musicians. And it's really been fascinating. So join us once again next week when you bring the Jam Session Radio Hour once again. We want to thank all those who have helped us put this together. Um, most particularly the NYU people, Dave Schroeder, um, and his uh, fellow producers, Joseph Villa, Ed Barada, Shake Up Productions, made possible by a gift from Selma Geller. We want to thank Silvana Monasterios for the use of his Tropical Mirage as our intro and outro. We want to thank Fernando Valladares uh, for helping us choose the music and his buddy Rafael Alvarez, our uh, post-production um, uh, guru, and Klaas Brandahl for being the musical director of the Jam Session. So for the Jam Session Radio Hour, let's sign off once again, wishing you to stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you again next week. Good night.